0: Well, if you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. So over the last few weeks, we've learned that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We have learned that it's what makes the future present and the unseen visible. We've learned that faith affects our thinking and our standing and our communion and our witness. We've learned that faith elicits obedience and distinctiveness and reasonableness and anticipation. And we've learned that this faith values God's promises and Christ's reproach and Christ's work over the world's commands and rewards and wisdom. And this faith, though I I think we already know this, but this faith bears no semblance to the faith that is commonly described today or that is championed by the Word of Faith movement. There's no semblance to the faith that is spoken of by the health wealth and prosperity gospel and the and that so-called gospel's proponents that's so prevalent today and our our passage and, and really if there is any doubt of that fact our passage tonight puts that to rest this is part five of this mini series in As we walk through the hall of faith. And we will be in 29 to 40, as I just read. And we're going to look at what faith expects. What faith expects. So we've looked at what it affects, elicits values now, what it expects. Three things tonight we'll look at. Faith, the faith, the biblical saving faith, expects the impossible to be made possible, it expects success and suffering and it expects something better let's go to the Lord Father this is your eternal and infallible and inerrant word and while the grass withers and the flower fades we believe it will in fact endure forever and we would ask that tonight by the ministry of your spirit and the word please challenge us strengthen us, encourage us, and give us rest for our souls. Give us ears to hear what you have to say to us as you speak to us through that which you have already spoken. And I ask these things in Jesus' name and for the sake of His church. Amen. So faith, what does faith expect? First, it expects the impossible to be made possible. Look at verse 29. The writer says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And by faith Rahab... The prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The writer continues to walk chronologically through his examples when we arrive here in verse 29. And the examples that he mentions right away here in 29 and 30 are the crossing of the Red Sea and, of course, the the walls or the battle, really, of Jericho. The former is, of course... Part of the drama during Israel's departure or exodus from Egypt. And they're part of the drama of that redemption from captivity. And then the latter one is a part of that drama of Israel's entrance into the land of Canaan that the Lord had promised. They were going into this is the beginning of that possession of that land. And there were, of course, As you know, there were 40 years in between those two events. But when you consider, when we look back at chapter 3, and we see that the writer used those years to warn his readers and warn us uh, to not go astray, to not harden our hearts, to not be in rebellion or to not provoke the Lord and not fail to enter into God's rest as the Israelites had done during that 40 years of faithless wandering, it makes sense, right? It it doesn't fit here. But we've already accounted for those, so he he moves on. And and we all know there's a great deal of significance between or, there's a great deal of significance in these two events of the Red Sea and of course the Battle of Jericho, enough so that we could probably spend a week or more on each of these events separately. There are so many things that we could cover, but when we remember the context or purpose of the letter as a whole and when we remember the context of chapter 11 specifically, I believe it's best to take them together and look at what they shared in common, which was the overall magnitude of what happened in these events. In both cases, the Israelites are facing a formidable foe. They've got the Egyptians that are coming from behind. And they've got those in Jericho uh, before them. And the odds are against them. One was attempting to thwart their escape. One was attempting to thwart their entrance. And by the looks of things, when you take the sheer number of those that are against them and their enemies, and you take the sea itself, and you take the walls in the city of Jericho, and it's very safe to say that... In both occasions, humanly speaking, the situation was dire. We look at and, and we see the circumstances and we realize from a human perspective that the circumstances in, in regards to victory, possession, and freedom all look impossible. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone that was looking at those things from our earthly perspective and saying, yeah, this is a piece of cake. But we know the stories, right? The sea parted, the walls came down, and the writer says in both cases that it happened by faith. It happened by faith, and we need to flesh this out a little bit, and because there are a few details that I think are worth noting in these experiences. First, you'll notice the writer doesn't mention uh, Moses in Hebrews uh, Hebrews 20, eleven verse twenty nine. Moses is not mentioned. Um, Now, when we read back in Exodus 14 and we go back to verses 10 to 12 prior to the passage that I read, we realize it was actually his faith that was instrumental in leading the Israelites uh, out of Egypt and and through the Red Sea. Listen, uh, listen to verses 10 to 12. When Pharaoh drew near. For us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Nobody's buying that they're getting out of this. Moses says, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only To be silent. The people of course were were afraid. They were ready to shrink back. They they didn't see any way out. There was no way forward. There was no way back. They knew it was over. But it was Moses and his faith. That secured them corporately. It was Moses. It, It wasn't until they were on the other side. That they were trusting in Moses and the Lord. We read this in 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. They saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against them. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed the Lord and in his servant Moses. So after the fact they believed. But what do we know? It was short lived. It was short lived. Their, Their confidence in the Lord and in Moses died away. So it was the faith of Moses that the Lord rewarded and honored.
1: Notice also in verse 30, the writer doesn't
0: mention Joshua's faith. He simply says, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. But of course, Joshua had been instructed by the Lord himself to do what, in fact, the nation did. He, like Joshua's faith, like Moses' faith, encouraged and elevated the, the people around him and if you add to it what they had just seen at the Jordan with its waters drying up and the people passing through right, they were ready to do exactly every single thing that the Lord had asked them to do and I think you I know children you'll remember the story and what they did they they were supposed to march around the people of Israel were supposed to march around the city of Jericho for seven days. They, there was a specific order that they were to march in that started out with soldiers, and then there were seven priests who were blowing the rams, horns, or the shofars, and then there were priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which was the presence of the Lord, so the presence of the Lord, and so the Ark of the Covenant was in the center of the line, and then was always before the people, because the people were following next, and then soldiers to the rear. And they were to march seven seven days. They would march around. Everybody was to be quiet except the horns. And that happened for six days. On the seventh day, see if I can tell. How many many times were they to go around? Seven. I heard somebody say it. Seven times. Right? They were to do it silently. And on the seventh time around... The the shofars were moaned. And then Joshua said. Shout. Because the Lord has given you this city. Those were the instructions. And they did exactly what they were supposed to do. And what happened? The people shouted. And the walls came down. The walls came down. Now. For most of us. That's a pretty ridiculous plan. When you think about it. uh, It wasn't this great military strategy that had been used before or would be used again but the people of the lord did exactly what they were supposed to do the people the people of jericho probably let them know how ridiculous it all was as they were marching but they continued anyway and the lord honored and rewarded their faith that was made evident by their obedience and he gave them the city just as he had promised to give them very important The Lord had promised the city so their faith was in the Lord and in His promises to do what He said He would do. Now finally, the only individual named in these first three verses is the name of a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab. She and her family were um, the only ones that weren't destroyed. She had... And why? Because she had put everything on the line. She put everything on the line, including her life and the life of her family, in order to protect the Israelite spies as well as, well, to protect the spies. And really what she's doing is handing over her own city to be destroyed. And we learn in Joshua 2 why she did that. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land... And that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sahan and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She had heard of what the Lord had been doing as the Israelites were approaching. She heard this from other people, probably even from those who visited the brothel in which she worked. And she believed. Her faith led her to act decisively. She was fearless despite the cost. And again, she did so on behalf of the spies. And she desired to seek refuge among the people of God. So we have a a Canaanite woman. Right? Who who was a part of a, a people that was... Uh, People in the city that was to be destroyed. There was so much about her that was different. But we've got the impossibility. Before we go on with her. We've got the impossibility of the sea drying up. The impossibility of the wall being destroyed. Both were equally impossible in the eyes of the Israelites. And the writer is encouraging in those events to... To help the the readers, to encourage them to say that you have the same faith that Moses and and Joshua had. You have the faith to expect the impossible to be made possible. Why? Well, because nothing is impossible with God. Right? He is... We, and we've said this in the last two weeks. His lying or acting contrary to his word or failing to deliver on his promises are all greater impossibilities than any impossibility we might face, humanly speaking. There's nothing God can overcome. There's nothing that stands in God's way and in his and, and from him. Or stand in the way of him fulfilling his promises and purposes no matter how impossible it might seem from our vantage point. His word and promises are unequivocally sure. And again, while we could find many ways to apply both the crossing of the Red Sea and the toppling of the walls of Jericho, I want to focus specifically on Rahab. Because her physical salvation became a spiritual salvation. Because she became a part of the people of God. She was, again, as I just mentioned, she was a pagan woman. She was from a cursed people. She lived in a condemned city that was to be destroyed. And she sold herself to others for living. And in the eyes of many, she was, may have been one of the most impossible candidates to possess and exercise faith. In the eyes of many, right, her being changed was as impossible, particularly in the eyes of the Israelites, as the sea being parted under the walls falling. And yet she becomes a princess and an ancestor of Christ. Faith expects the impossible to be made possible. So let me ask you this evening. Who is that friend? Who is that family member? Who's lost? Who have you prayed for? Who is that one or two? And let me tell you this evening that no one is beyond God's reach. No one's beyond God's reach. No one can outsend His love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. No one is too bad. No one is too hopeless. No one is too eager. There is no particular gender or ethnicity or citizenship or status or position or occupation that disqualifies anyone or makes them off limits. Rahab Rahab tells us that there is hope for The least likely among us. Rahab tells us that there is hope for the wayward. There's hope for the lost. And there's hope for the rebellious. And brothers and sisters, Rahab tells us that there's hope for us. There's hope for us because before a holy God, we are no different than her. Sinners saved by grace. faith. Faith expects the impossible to be made possible. But also it expects success and suffering. Both. Look at verse 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. The author begins by conceding a couple of things. He said, I could go on and on and on with more stories And the same would be true in each and every story. And then he says, But I don't have time to tell you all those things. And so he just starts throwing out names. This is where the chronology starts to fail because they're not in order. And his goal basically is to say that it's always been about faith, always has been. Always will be about faith. There's nothing different. And in verse 32 through 35, he says, All of these men, including Daniel, who I know was not listed in the men, but there are some in some of his descriptions, I think we can see what uh kind of Daniel experienced, and so I would include Daniel in that. But all of those men experienced success as a result of their faith. Right? They were victorious. They won battles, they conquered kingdoms, they earned reputations for their conquests. We read that they enforced justice on behalf of the Lord, that they were recipients of God's promises, they were delivered from very precarious situations, they survived attacks and threats. He even says a couple of ladies that from the lives of Elijah and Elisha, a couple of ladies received the dead back. Uh received the uh, received Children, back from the dead. Success. Victory. And his point to the readers, remember who they were. Right? In the midst of escalating persecution, and he wants them to know, just like these from the past, you possess that same faith, and that faith expects Success. Faith expects God to be for them. And the writer's saying, look, faith expects God to be for you. It expects that what he has said he will do, he will do. It says and expects that if, you know, that God can, if he so pleases to deliver success and justice and victory and triumph for anyone he wants in any way he wants, anywhere he wants, anytime he wants. And he not only can, but desires to do that on behalf of his people who who look to him in faith. He takes pleasure in rewarding the faith of his children. It's what he desires to do. And again, we need to remember faith in God and his promises. Faith in God and his word. Faith in who God has revealed himself to be through what he has spoken and brothers and sisters, for us tonight, we possess that same faith. That is our faith. We have the same faith that looks to Christ in whom all the promises are yes and amen. And our, our faith expects success. We expect God to work and to will for His good pleasure. We expect God, to bring success and justice and victory and triumph in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of injustice and through social upheaval and racial and ethnic tensions and culture wars, if he so pleases, as we live by faith in his word. We believe it. as dire as some things might seem, we, we know that there's nothing that God cannot do for those, well, there's nothing He cannot do in and through the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit in the lives of people who look to Him in faith. It's unlimited. And our hope is in Him, and if our hope is in Him, we can expect success. But if I left it there, I'd be no different than those that I mentioned in the introduction. If I left it there, I would be no different than the health and wealth and prosperity gospel preachers. Because if I left it there, I would give a false impression that faith ensures the absence of suffering. If we stop there, we would sound like if it's, you know, if you have faith or if you have enough faith, then you'll never be sick. Or if you're sick, you'll be healed or you'll be rich or you'll have all. uh, Well, basically, you will live your best life now. But the writer dispels all that right here. If there was any question. This second truth runs parallel to the first. And that's why I put them together and didn't create separate points. This is one point together. Ken Hughes puts it this way. God has not promised wholesale deliverance in this life for his people at all times and in every situation. Not all of us will be winners in this life. And then he goes on to say, from the world's point of view, some people of faith are huge Losers. Look at verse 35. Some were tortured. Refusing to accept release. So that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging. Even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. A very, very different description than the previous paragraph, isn't it? Richard Phillips wrote, there's theirs, the second group. Theirs, however, was no less a triumphant faith, for it enabled them to honor God by faithfully enduring to the end. Most commentators agree that the writer of Hebrews is looking back to a group of 2nd century Jews called the Maccabeans. Maccabees, 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 And they were being persecuted under King Antiochus Epiphanes. And their experiences, he believed, I I think he believed that as they were experiencing that escalating persecution would be something that they might in fact experience in the not too distant future. And the torture that's described there in verse 35 is absolutely brutal. When you go back and read The the history of what was done to this group, they were stretched over frames and wheels and beaten until they bled out internally. They were scalped, their tongues were removed, they were mutilated and burned. And they had an opportunity to renounce what they believed. They would have saved themselves and they refused. He also speaks of others and the others more than likely were the prophets, the prophets who were mocked and jeered and flogged. Tradition says that Isaiah was, in fact, sawn in two. And the writer's point is that these these prophets were persecuted, mistreated, beaten, poor, destitute, had only the clothes on their backs and had nowhere to lay their head. That didn't include a rock. And the people in whom they spoke and in those that, that they lived around, they just looked at them, you're not worthy of us. They were looked down upon, and, but the writer says it wasn't they who were unworthy, it was the people themselves in whom, or to whom the prophets were speaking that were unworthy. These prophets, these, in this second paragraph, were stalwarts of faith. Well, brothers and sisters, despite what those who preach the health and wealth gospel might say, biblical saving faith expects suffering. It expects suffering. We don't fully understand that. But I think it's safe to say the 2,983 Christians who've been killed in the last year for their faith do or did. The 9,488 churches. Members of the 9,488 churches and other Christian organizations that were in buildings that have been attacked in the past year do. The... Th- 3,711 Christians that have been detained without trial and arrested and sentenced and imprisoned in, in the past year do. Christians in North Korea, Afghanistan, Libya, and Somalia do. And I think we're naive if we think it won't eventually happen here. One commentator puts it this way, Christian faith does not guarantee us comfort in this world. Yes, God delivers some from trouble, but others he delivers in trouble. God may place us on either of the two sides of this record, on the side of those who conquer in success or of those who are conquered and defeated. What matters is not the circumstances, neither blessing in this life nor the trials. What matters is the faith by which we may conquer in all circumstances through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's be honest, most of us in this room have to this point all been placed on the side of of those who have conquered in success. Not saying we haven't had difficulties, not saying we haven't had trials, not saying we haven't dealt with illnesses, but true that persecution in that paragraph that we just read, we've been on this side of conquered and success. And we need to ask ourselves if we're ready to switch sides. More and more I believe we better be. We need to decide now that physical health and wealth and prosperity and comfort are temporary and fleeting. We must be people of faith who count everything, as Paul says, count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. For His sake, we need to be ready to lose everything and count it all rubbish in order that we might gain Christ. It will be a whole lot easier to decide. As we used to tell our kids, it's a whole lot easier to decide something in advance than it is to decide in the midst of the heat of the battle. We need to decide now. Faith expects... Faith expects success, but it also expects suffering. And then finally... Faith expects something better. Verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Great, encouraging words. The writer clearly says as to, to the readers, to us, that all of these people, all of those that we've looked at from, from uh, throughout chapter 11... All of these people, from those who experienced success to those who experienced the suffering, received the exact same response from the Lord that he mentioned earlier in the chapter. It was all the same. So those who were saved from the sword and those who died by the sword, or those who um, carried out justice and those who suffered injustice, experienced the same thing. All of them, like Abel and Enoch and Noah, were all commended for and through their faith. Their faith pleased the Lord, and therefore the, the Lord was pleased with them. They were all on the same playing field. And all of these, the writers have, have uh, mentioned, remained faithful to the end, despite the fact that they never saw or experienced the fulfillment of, Of those promises. In the ultimate sense. They all died waiting for the fulfillment. Let's think back of our study of Hebrews. They all died waiting for the better covenant. They all died waiting for the better prophet. They all died waiting for the better priest. They all died waiting for the better blood and the better sacrifice. But their faith, the future unseen Messiah, was present and visible by faith. But the writer says their salvation was not perfected until His work on the cross was complete. The point of it is, work was Work was finished and their salvation was complete. They were not made perfect apart from anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. People of the past, people of the present, people of the future are all made perfect through Christ. One way of salvation. It's no different for them to, then as it will, is for us today and Leon Morris says that salvation is social. It concerns the whole people of God. We can experience it only as a part of the whole people of God. As long as the believers in the Old Testament were without those who were in Christ, it was impossible for them to experience the fullness of salvation. Furthermore, it is what Christ has done that opens the way into the very presence of God for them as well as for us. Only the work of Christ brings those of the Old Testament times and those of the new and the living way alike into the presence of God. It's about Jesus. And what he has done. He is the one to whom we should look. And brothers and sisters, this final application and encouragement from this chapter for us is found in these words. God has provided something better for us. Wonderful words. There's something better. Those in the hall of faith believed in who and what was to come. We believe in who and what has come. Those that we've been looking at over this last month. They they knew only types and shadows. We know the reality with clarity. And so that question becomes, how much more should we live by faith than those who have gone before us? There's a tendency to think that our circumstances, oh well, we've got a little easier, so it doesn't really require as much faith. But the reality is because Christ, because of Christ's work being complete, we, we have As I read this week, we have a greater privilege, but we we see him, we have that reality with clarity. So we have that greater privilege, therefore we have a greater responsibility. We've got a greater responsibility. Calvin once said, if those on whom the great light of grace had not yet shown, showed such surpassing constancy in bearing their ills, what effect ought the full glory of the gospel have on us? A tiny spark of light led them to heaven, but now that the sun of righteousness shines on us, what excuse shall we offer if we still cling to the earth? Therefore, as we find ourselves in this in-between time, between the already and the not yet, may we remember these that we have been looking at over the last month. May we we look back and and look at these men and women of faith, and may they cause us to fix our gaze upon Christ. Because He is the one to whom they were looking. He is the one to whom they point us. So may we look to Him. He, he was the one that their faith grasped. Ours should as well. And in the midst of all that's going on today, and not just today, but every day, remember that our faith that we have expects something better. Because, yes, Christ has come. He has. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, He is coming again. He's coming again. This isn't the best life. The best life is yet to come. It's yet to come. Let's go to the Lord. Well, Father, may we receive what has been preached with faith and love. May we lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Would you now by your spirit help us to see and to respond to all that is going on around us in a way that exhibits our trust in you. You who are bringing about your will, which is to conform us into the image of Christ. May we live by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name, amen respond